Again, I think one of the reasons why we have these protests in Belarus is precisely because Lukashenko today is not the Lukashenko of five, let alone 10 years ago. He's not only is he out of step with the, with the needs and aspirations of the country, but he's out of step with how he was. Howdy, dear listeners. This is your host, Matt. Today, I had on Dr. Mark Galliotti. Dr. Galliotti is a principal director of the consultancy Mayak Intelligence and is affiliated with University College London and the Institute of International Relations, Prague. He is the author of the blog and podcast In Moscow's Shadow and is the author of numerous books on Russia, including We Need to Talk About Putin. Today, we talked about the poisoning, alleged poisoning of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. We talked about the ongoing protests in Khabarovsk. And we talked about Belarus, the ongoing post-election chaos. So I think that you'll really enjoy it. First, just a few words about our programs. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Galliotti, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So obviously, I think the natural place to start is this suspected poisoning, what appears to be an attempted poisoning of uh, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. When something like this happens, it usually breaks into two camps, right? We have the, this isn't in the Kremlin's interest camp, and this, and then we have, you know, members of the opposition for clear political reasons saying, obviously, they're doing this, uh, it's, a, it's an attempted assassination, and it's clearly in the interests of the Kremlin. I mean, what do you what do you think about these arguments? Do you think that a dead Navalny is in uh, the Kremlin's interest? I don't. And in fact, it's interesting that Navalny himself, you know, when he's asked, how come you're still alive? He tends to say it's precisely because I'm actually more problematic for the Kremlin as a corpse. And I, I think that still holds true. This is the thing that at the moment, we can be pretty bullish on the fact that this was a poisoning, not a mysterious low blood sugar level incident or whatever. (laughs) But on the other hand, what we really don't know is whether or not this is because orders came from the Kremlin, which is possible, but in my opinion, not terribly likely precisely for that reason, or whether it's more likely that it was one of the many people he's investigated and generally annoyed. I mean, let's be honest, his list of people he's annoyed is as long as the list of rich, powerful Russians or whether it's just some local political leader, security official, or cabal of people who thought that's what the Kremlin wanted. Because one of the key things about this country is, and again, anyone who knows Russia ought to know this, there is this vision from people who don't really know Russia that well, that it is a ruthless totalitarianism, where everything is decided from the top, and everything happens with lockstep efficiency. Now, that ain't the Russia that I know. And instead, what's interesting is precisely that a central element of the way the Putin state works, uh, that I've called it adhocracy, is actually that the institutions, the formal structures, the formal chains of command don't really mean all that much. This is much more like a medieval court where everyone is competing to try and get the, the czar's favour. And often the czar himself will not give specific instructions, but just make his broad objectives known. And then everyone scurries around trying to do what they think the boss wants. And that can be terribly efficient because in some ways it, it, it utilizes the imaginations and the ambitions of all these often you know, 
quite effective if ruthless and unpleasant individuals. But it can also mean that people can do things that they think the Kremlin wants, but that in fact was not what the Kremlin wanted. That's a very long answer to... No, no, no. Anyway, the, 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 the TLDR version is, we don't know. But the yes. point is exactly, the way the Russian state works is precisely, it could be all kinds of different actors. Right. I, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I think the biggest debate going on is this question of whether they gave the order or whether it was just, uh, you know, kind of uncontrolled actors acting on their own volition, but maybe under this idea that they had a kind of implicit signal that, you know, this could be okay. Which in a way, I mean, it matters and in a way it doesn't. I mean, again, some people say, oh, it doesn't matter. Putin has ultimate moral responsibility, which he does. You know, he is, after all, the man who is, to a large extent, created and certainly presides over this state. But it does matter for those of us who really want to analyse the situation, because otherwise we're going to, what would happen is we're going to start making assumptions about Kremlin policy based on something that may well not have been Kremlin policy in the first place. So I did read a really interesting argument about how, you know, certain people in the security surface, propagandists, they were secretly praying for Navalny's health, despite the fact that, you know, they've been acting against him for so long because, you know, these are their lives and, you know, you become a specialist on, you know, Navalny and his activities and his fund. And all of a sudden your, you know, career that you've received all your promotions for all of a sudden, you know, all your knowledge could go out the window uh, in, in an instant. And so, I mean, do we have an idea of who would see a, Naval, a dead Navalny in the Kremlin's interest and then who definitely would not? Are, the, is, are there very clear kind of Kremlin towers who would be for and against this? Can we identify them? Well, I suspect that uh, the people right at the top of the system would all be in the best if Navalny survives camp. Let's be honest. I mean, he, he is a problem and he is a challenge for the Kremlin. There's no question about that. But the very fact he's been able to operate for so long speaks to the fact that this is, again, this is not Stalinist Russia. This is a a hybrid regime that appreciates that in the name of its own legitimacy, it's important to have some kind of scope, some kind of pressure valve for oppositional views. And, And from their point of view, Navalny was a sort of, as long as he was kept in his place, was an acceptable kind of, of opposition figure. Take out Navalny and People or someone is going to have to fill that niche. It's going to emerge. It may well be not someone you'd pick. And who knows? It could be some scary ultranationalist, for example, articulating a nationalist critique of the Putin regime and its corruption, which might be a lot harder to cope with than some nice, westernized, hipster-friendly sort of type. So I think the people at the top would probably prefer Navalny to survive, or if he was going to die, for it to be a, a, a truly subtle death, for him to accidentally fall under a bus. It's more likely precisely to be the, the, the less sophisticated actors, which may well be regional. I mean, we know that he was in Tomsk both to meet with local supporters, but also to carry out one of his often very detailed and forensic investigations into corruption. So it could well be that there was someone there who really didn't want his own misdeeds coming to light, especially not in one of these glitzy very highly circulated video investigations that Navalny puts out. We've had other names thrown into the frame, and one of the perhaps most compelling would be Evgeny Prigozhin, so-called Putin's chef, though I, I hate that little <laughs> tag because he was never Putin's chef. But you know, nonetheless, a figure who you know, has a criminal record, 
Interestingly, I mean, given that, you know, I've been working for more years than I care to recall, you know, Russian spooks and criminals and so forth. Prigozhin's one of the few people I've had, I had actually people warn me off from looking at, saying that this is a guy who doesn't, you might say, follow the rules, the etiquette of what happens in, in, in Russia. So, you know, it could be someone like Prigozhin who basically either didn't really get where the boundaries of acceptable behaviour are, <laughs> or didn't care. Uh, and, and there are others, but, you know, Prigozhin's, I think, the sort of the, the, the best known one, and one who with whom Navalny has locked horns in the past. Now, this is not me saying, I think Prigozhin did it. I'm just simply saying that if I were, you know, if, if this were to be something that a genuine investigation w- would be done on, and of course it won't be. But nonetheless, you know, Prigozhin would be somewhere on my list. You brought up Navalny's replacement and the idea of potentially a more nationalist figure replacing Navalny. We actually had Maxim Mironov, who was one of the co-authors of Navalny's economic plan on the podcast two days ago, I believe. And he didn't even want to speculate on what would happen to the Russian opposition and who would replace Navalny. If you are willing to indulge us a little bit, do you have any thoughts about what could happen to the Russian opposition, how it might be reorganized? Well, thank you so much for framing as the, if you're willing to be tasteless enough. To, um, but yes, I, I, I will indeed be tasteless enough to, to speculate. Again, I mean, I think this is the thing that the one thing that one can say about Navalny's movement is that the Russian government has time and again prevented it from properly institutionalizing. I mean, there, you know, there is his foundation, which is now being wound up because of a whole series of, frankly, spurious legal claims against it. His attempts time and again to create a political party have been blocked by the government by sometimes quite imaginative and creative ways and sometimes not. And I can understand why the government did that, because they think, oh, we, we, do, we don't want to let him build a basis, because clearly this is a man who wants to build a nationwide party. However, in hindsight, they may decide that that was a mistake. Because if you had actually created a party, you would precisely have a sense of what is the hierarchy? What is the chain of command? What is the chain of succession? You, in a way, have a target from the point of view of, you know, whoever is sitting there in the FSB and has main responsibility for the Navalny file or the post-Navalny file. The very fact that this hasn't been able to be institutionalized means, on the one hand, it's chaotic because there isn't an obvious person to succeed. Um, And that's a problem for the opposition. But it's also a a problem for the authorities, because I think the the, the key point about Navalny is not that you might say he articulated a specific program or platform that Russians could agree with. It was rather that he was the lightning rod to which all kinds of energies, all kinds of angers and frustrations and sheer fed-upness that absolutely are building across the country could be directed, and particularly his his emphasis on corruption, because that's one issue that precisely crosses and transcends every class, ethnic, and regional divide. Everyone you talk to in Russia has got their problems, their experiences of corruption, well, unless they're right at the top of the system. And therefore, it provides a language and a theme which can unite. But so precisely because it, it, it's so incohate, it means that those energies are going to be still there. And if it's not Navalny, it, it's going to be someone else who gets to pick them up. I mean, I mentioned the nationalists. I mean, I, this is one of the interesting things. 
for understandable reasons in the West, academics and journalists basically talk to West-friendly opposition forces. You know, they're, they're more likely to speak English, which matters to some. They are more willing to talk to, to journalists and, and, and scholars. They're more likely to be based in, in Moscow and Petersburg and so forth. We shouldn't forget that there is also a strong nationalist anti-government force. People like Strelkov, Girkin, uh, you know, person who sort of, by his own account, uh, pulled the trigger on the war in the Donbass. You know, who, who, Navalny, who Navalny debated, by the way. Absolutely, uh, which again was interesting. It was showing that Navalny, you know, was was not afraid of, of of engaging these people. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is that actually, if you look at their program and the the, the recently deceased Konstantin Krylov, who was kind of in, in some ways the, the intellectual architect of their view, but you know. Their view is basically Russia has been betrayed, and it's been betrayed precisely because it's an authoritarianism, which means that you know, one guy and his cronies can steal the lot. And so, perversely, these often quite unpleasant ultranationalists, I mean, their response to this is, therefore, what it needs is rule of law and democracy, so that the Russians can protect themselves against being betrayed by this. So, you know, there are all these other figures, and who knows who could emerge? And I think this is precisely why it's a, a very complex situation is because we don't have, I mean, yes, there are names we know, Yubov, Sabol, and so forth, you know, people who have been in, in, in Navalny's sphere. But there's no one who one can definitely say, that's the person to whom the crown would fall if Navalny could not or would not continue. And that's why it's, it's, it's exciting, it's complex, and actually even for people in the Lubyanka, probably quite scary. And you bring up the rising kind of dissatisfaction and also the rising nationalism. And I think when I hear those two terms, the, the thing it makes me think of is Habarovsk, where we have this arrested governor and the party he is of is this uh, liberal democratic party, although it's usually called a nationalist party. What do you think the, the Kremlin makes of these Habarovsk events and how does Habarovsk fit into what you were just saying? Yeah, I mean, I imagine Habarovsk is precisely a big concern for them. Precisely because it's not that special. I mean, yes, in this case, you have this elected governor, Furgal, whom, let's be perfectly honest, is a very unexpected tribune of the people. He didn't really want to be there standing as governor. He stood because basically it was kind of forced upon him. And he got elected really as a protest vote. He didn't actually do any real campaigning himself. But once he was elected, he, in a way, realizing that this was his job, he did some populist uh, sort of anti-corruption, anti-waste type measures and so forth. But the protest in Kabaros, although they're notionally about his arrest and his immediate abstraction to Moscow by a plane load of police commandos, it's not really about Furgal. It's precisely about the dissatisfaction of provincial populations at a Moscow that they feel only really cares about them when it's time to tax them or conscript them. You know, that it doesn't care that it's busy building. I mean, you know, Moscow is this phenomenally fun, exciting, dynamic European city, but in part because like most capital cities, it drains the lifeblood out of the rest of the country, you know, and they've had enough. And I think therefore why what's happening in Khabarovsk is scary for the Kremlin is precisely because it's nothing special. There is no particular Khabarovsk-related issue. It's not like Furgal was this phenomenally effective firebrand politician. It's not like Khabarovsk had just had this you know, extraordinarily bad impact of, of COVID or economic depression or whatever. It was any town. And this is why, I mean, the parallel I've drawn in some of my writings is with the Novocherkask massacre in the 1950s 
where you had, you know, an industrial town in the, in what seemed like the back of nowhere, where unfortunate coincidence of a cut in piece rate norms, i.e. wages at the main local factory and an increase in bread pr- or food prices led to protests, which were mishandled, escalated into violence, and, and you had this mass. Why that was scary for the Soviet leadership at the time was precisely because their sense was if it could happen in Novichokask, it could happen anywhere. Well, likewise, I think the thing about is Khabarovsk, if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. So again, it, it speaks to this notion that there is a huge kind of protest potential. And it's about who, if anyone, can get to harness that potential. And we saw yesterday a very new interesting chant at Khabarovsk, Putin drank the tea, obviously referring to the attempted poisoning of Navalny. Do you believe that whoever ordered the Navalny poisoning, assuming that's what this is, that Khabarovsk played any role in their decision as to when, as to do this now? Well, it may have. You know, we have a situation in which you know, this year has been, been a rocky one for, for everyone everywhere. But particularly from the Kremlin's point of view, Putin, Frank, I wouldn't say he mishandled COVID. It's rather that he didn't bother handling COVID at all. And the responsibility was very quickly sort of dumped on regional governors who didn't really have the resources or, or the knowledge to, to handle it. Some handled it relatively well. Sobyanin in Moscow, others much less so. You've got the concomitant uh, economic hit that took place as a result. You've got just over the border in Belarus, a fairly sort of striking object lesson in the capacities of people power. Um, and you have coming up a local elections in Russia on the back of a constitutional vote that you know, was clearly rigged to try and give the sense of a supermajority for Putin. I mean, I, I'm sure he would have won the, um, a majority, but not the supermajority that, that he did get. So I think put all those together... And it may well be that people were concerned and they thought, no, actually, the environment is too dangerous to have a loose cannon like Navalny, particularly when his, his smart vote campaign, the idea of tactical voting for whoever is most likely to beat the United Russia candidate, may well be particularly striking a chord. So it could be that that's the case. And it could be that people, as a result, felt that that red line of what is a sort of acceptable versus unacceptable political activism has shifted. And Navalny now finds himself on the wrong side of it and therefore fair game. This is, of course, speculation. But Twitter pundits, among uh, other pundits, everybody was kind of wondering, why now, why now, why now? And we have these two events in Khabarovsk and Belarus, and they're kind of the the events that we would assume if the Kremlin made the order, that's what they were looking at. But again, if it it was not the Kremlin who gave the order, they, they may have been looking at these events, they may have been looking at different ones. Um, they may have been, had these much this much more short-term focus. I'm kind of more of the opinion that if the Kremlin did order this, then I think they were looking much more down the road, and they were maybe looking at potentially four years from now when Russia is expecting its next presidential election, when some political scientists, uh, including uh, Yekaterina Shulman, uh, predicts that Russia could have its Belarus uh, moment. What do, you, what do you think about this idea that, you know, maybe this was done with a very far, a much larger horizon than things that are going on, that are going on right now? I mean, it's, it's possible. The problem is this, obviously, human beings, we are great engines of pattern recognition. You show us a few dots and we'll be working out what that shape is. And unfortunately, show four of us the same dots and we'll have four different shapes. The thing about the, the four-year time span is that... 
I mean, let's be honest, very few political regimes think beyond next week or next month or next election. I, I'm not quite sure that if that was the case, you'll be thinking now is the time to do it. Let's say you do think that we need to get Navalny out of the picture before, well before the presidential election so that you know he, he has receded into the tides of history. If you are the state, essentially you, will, you have the opportunity to get at him whenever you want to get at him. It's interesting, there was this report in Maskovsky Komsomolets that demonstrated the extent to which you had this massive security operation around Navalny to precisely track him, work out which his safe house was, look at who ordered sushi when as a yes, way of identifying yes, where they are and so promise. forth. Well, you know, that must mean that there is a large team. I mean, you know, think about it too. Generally speaking, to, to maintain round, effective round-the-clock observation of one people, one person, the FSB will generally deploy 24 agents. Well, this is clearly even bigger than that. So, you know, you, you think of what, what kind of a scale of security operation there is. You know, you can't tell me that they can't, um, you know, inject some toxin into him or, you know, however, by however means or otherwise deal with him at any point. If that's the case, he's actually on a plane heading back from Tomsk, the obvious time and place to do it. I, 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 and amidst all the turmoil of Belarus and Khabarovsk. Now, again, I mean, again, one, one can argue either way. You can say, aha, well, it's going to get lost in the static. There's so much else on that, that if anything, Navalny kind of distracts from Belarus or whatever. I don't know, maybe. My sense is that, generally speaking, they, they don't think in that kind of span, that these are essentially a collection of, in some ways, quite shrewd but limited individuals desperately trying to hold on to their status, their position and their ill-gotten gains. I don't get the sense of great strategy. I don't really get the sense of quite where that strategy would, would be based anyway. Certainly Putin is not a political technologist. So no, I, I would say that I think their, their, their horizons tend to be that much shorter. Let's move to Belarus. I read an interesting argument that was basically saying that at the beginning of this year, the most important events in terms of thinking about the, how much they will affect Russia in a longer term perspective, five, 10, 20 years, were, you know, first the constitution vote that then got delayed, delayed, and then COVID, obviously. COVID really undermined Putin's authority and his uh, power vertical, as, as they call it. And the constitution vote with the massive falsifications and kind of the disgruntlement around the whole thing also really frustrated people. But on top of both those events, this argument basically said that the more important event for determining Russia's future was actually what happened in Belarus and these mass protests that we're seeing. Do, what do you think about that argument? Do you buy that? Well, I, I would say potentially, but not probably in the way that was being thought. If, and I still think this is very, very unlikely, but it's not impossible, if Russia does choose to intervene in Belarus, I genuinely think that will be catastrophic. I think that really will overshadow politics for the next few years for all kinds of different reasons, not least the fact that it will almost certainly be a contested intervention. And then the Russians are going to find themselves in a position of basically having to, to administer, pacify and pay for a province that doesn't want to be part of it. It's not like Crimea or whatever. Usually the argument is, aha, a democratic revolution in Belarus would somehow contaminate, quote unquote, Russia, and that's how the Kremlin look at it. Interestingly, I'm not really getting any sign that that is a big concern. Insofar as we can, I mean, we're, we're just based on, obviously, 
public statements, and the kind of perspectives that we're getting in the usual sort of locations that, that, that channel Kremlin opinion. Some of the often quite toxic media commentators on TV, certain newspapers and such like. And there doesn't seem to be that sense of, oh, oh good gracious, no. Actually, this idea that, that Putin is somehow always on the side of autocrats is, I think, a very much a Western conceit because we want to divide the world into good guys and bad guys. And we're obviously the good guys, and therefore all the bad guys hung, hang together. I don't think Putin cares what political system countries have, as long as, in a way, they do the right thing, as far as he's concerned. Um, and, I mean, obviously, there's, there's only limits to how far one can draw the parallel, but I, think, I do think there's a good example with Armenia, where you had a revolution, a colour revolution. Uh, Pashinyan comes along, and clearly at first, Moscow is quite concerned. But as soon as Pashinyan makes it clear that he stands for democratisation and reform domestically, but no substantive change to Armenia's position internationally, Moscow's fine with that. So much so that now we have Azerbaijan complaining that the Russians are just being too nice to the Armenians and too supportive. Now, as I said, I mean, there, there are all kinds of differences. But nonetheless, it is very, very striking the extent to which the opposition is going out of its way to make it clear that this is not an anti-Russian movement. This is not a pro-European, how quickly can we get into the EU movement. This is not the Euromaidan, which was explicitly about that, that whole issue. I do feel that from the Russians' point of view, intervention is the second worst option. The worst option being losing, quote unquote, Belarus to, to the West. So as long as they can avoid that, I mean, I think they probably at the moment, their, their ideal outcome would be Lukashenko holds on weak and therefore can put, put pressure on him. But they have no liking for, for, for Lukashenko. They have no trust for him. This is a man who time and again plays Russia against the West. If we saw a reformist government that came into power, but which nonetheless was not going to question the Union Treaty, not going to try sudden uh, moves towards Europe, I think that, that, frankly, Moscow can live with it. And I don't think that would have a major impact on Russia itself. The, the real danger from the Kremlin's point of view of major changes, particularly in, in Russia and in Ukraine and Belarus, as the, kind of the other sort of Slavic brothers states, is not change in regime. It's change in regime away from a Soviet-style model that proves successful. The interesting thing is, at the moment, actually, the, the Russian propagandists have ample scope with Ukraine to say, look, they had their revolution, and look at what a basket case Ukraine is. Now, I'm, I'm not justifying that perspective. I'm just simply saying that there is, there is enough that is basket case-ish about Ukraine that the Russians can, can draw on it. So, in a way, the, the real issue is down the line. If we saw a different kind of regime in Belarus, if that actually then turned out to be successful, such that five years down the line, people can say, wow, Belarus, country that used to have a GDP per capita, half Russia's, now is doing really well. Look at this thriving IT sector, this, that, and the other. Then that could be a problem. But again, that's, that's, that's four, five, six years down the line. I don't think anyone in the Kremlin is really worrying about that now. Belarus now has this coordinated transition or transfer council. And, you know, I saw their first press conference and then their first plenary meeting or whatever they call it. And it seemed to me that they were going for this Findelinization route where we're not going to question our economic and military relationship with Russia, but we just want democracy. 
And it seemed to me that that was very coldly met. And, you know, I think me and a lot of other people questioning, well, it's the democracy part that scares them more than losing a military and economic ally. So what do you what do you think about that? Do they really fear Belarus leaving their sphere of influence, losing their that ally? Or do they fear the democracy part more of when Lukashenko goes, then it's just discredits Putinism and his system? Well, you see, Lukashenko's system is not Putin's for a start. You know, Lukashenko has been, frankly, a pain in the backside for the Russians for a long time. So, you know, I don't think they're going to say, oh, well, people will assume it's, it's, it's one and the same. I, I mean, I would love to feel that there is this natural, organic way in which de- democratization spreads, but we haven't seen it generally happen elsewhere. And in fact, one has to question, I mean, on the one hand, look, what's going on in Belarus is certainly from, from, from my perspective, astonishingly exciting and uplifting. You know, you have this, this, this truly peaceful, grassroots, largely leaderless rising that is actually filling the squares with people singing and chanting, not being willing to be overawed by these sort of bestial tactics of the Amon riot police and, and so forth. If Lukashenko falls peaceably, and if the Russians are willing to let that happen, which I think, again, if they felt they had the right guarantees, I think they, 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 they would be sort of perfectly willing to see him go. The realities of power, it will be interesting to see how far that people power actually manifests itself once you, you have some kind of new elections, once you have politics and factionalism rising. So, I mean, I think, I think we realise that Russia is going to have ample opportunities to influence Belarus. Many of the sort of opposition figures have their connections to Russia. Belarus cannot really break away from Russia. Over a third of all its exports and over half of its imports are with Russia. And there is a, a, you know, a genuine cultural as well as linguistic tie there. However much Lukashenko is trying to play the, oh, the opposition, they want to ban the Russian language and do all that kind of stuff. I, I mean, everyone realizes that's a fairly transparent sort of gambit. So we'll wait and see. It is entirely possible that actually a democratic revolution in Belarus could have an impact or would have an impact in in Russian politics. But I'm not getting the sense that that's the biggest concern from the point of view of the old men in the Kremlin. They, I think, see this in much, much more geopolitical terms. But also, again, from Putin's point of view, it's clear this is a man who has one eye on his historical legacy. And it's all very well for wanting to be the man who kind of, Russia has been brought off off its knees, as he said. Well, yeah, but if you also are the man who loses both Ukraine and Belarus, then your historical legacy is going to be looking a little bit more tarnished. And so given your knowledge of how Kremlin decision-making works, what what do you think are the the signposts or the signals that they're looking at that are that could potentially force them to act or to, to do something, mm-hmm. including, in, again, this maybe second worst case scenario of some kind of uh, military option. What, what are they kind of looking at as far as, okay, that just happened, we have to act? Yeah, I think, again, it's really going to be about the, the kind of perspectives that the, the opposition movement and the opposition leaders are putting forward. I think it's going to be the key thing. And certainly, were I in the Russian government apparatus, I would absolutely be thinking, okay, who do we have that can talk to these people? 
at the moment, because we haven't given up on Lukashenko yet, we can't look as if we're writing him off. So it's going to have to be through cutouts or whatever. But you know, we, we must have people who can be talking to them just to get a, to gauge their, their opinions. And there's going to be analysts sitting in Yaseneva, the Foreign Intelligence Service, in the Presidential Administration, the Security Council Secretariat, busy building files on all the men and women, particularly of the Coordinating Council, to be able to say, okay, are they, are they friendly? Are they hostile or, or what? The best thing we really have to go on at the moment, again, is to look at, as I mentioned before, the kind of pronouncements that we're getting in, in the media from officials or from people who tend to kind of channel certain official sources. And I think what we've seen is an interesting progression. Look, at first, clearly, this caught everybody by surprise. No one really knew what, what to, to, to say about the sort of the rise of this protest movement. And some people ignored it. Some people covered it quite, quite straight. Then you have the second stage where actually you start to get an anti-Lukashenko vibe creeping in. Obviously, particularly in the more free press, with you know, Komsomolets Moskovsky Komsomolets and so forth. But actually, even in ones that are more kind of associated or just outright run by the government. And I think that was a point where they were beginning to think, OK, well, we may well have to begin to accustom ourselves to a post-Lukashenko future. So let's make it clear that he fell because basically he was a badon and a thug and he was mistreating the population. Now we've gone into a third stage where actually I think we're beginning to actually see differences in opinion beginning to be played out by proxy. So we're getting some who are still basically saying Lukashenko is damaged goods, terminally damaged goods. You know, whether or not he survives, we should not put any trust in him. And then there are others who are the ones who are saying, we're beginning to see the West get involved. We're beginning to see Western interference. You know, As near as we can tell, the reason why basically President-elect Tikhanovskaya is in Lithuania rather than anywhere else is because basically that's where the Belarusian KGB drove her. But nonetheless, the fact that she's there is now being sort of somehow elevated to a sort of sign of her political sympathies or whatever. So I think at the moment, I I think that this is precisely an ongoing debate that is taking place within government circles. There is no line, except, frankly, wait and see. I mean, we're recording this on Sunday the 23rd. Huge protests took place again in Minsk, you know, maybe 300,000 people, which for a country of this size is is a huge proportion of the population. And there are also other, other protests going on in other cities. Until today, it looked as if momentum was actually slipping away from the opposition. The government was clamping down, strikers were returning to work under threats of being sacked and so forth. Now, well, maybe it, it, it swung back. So I think from, from the Russians' point of view, it's, it's too soon to call. I honestly think that if I had to say what is Russian government policy today, it is cross its fingers and hope. Hope that either Lukashenko manages to reestablish the situation, you know, his, his control, he won't survive for that long. I mean, he, he, his, the whole basis of his regime has now changed. He's lost his legitimacy. He might get through this. He might get through the next crisis. But whether we're talking weeks, months, or, or even a couple of years, I think basically we're now seeing the, the end of Lukashenko's regime. But nonetheless, again, you know, a few weeks, months, or years is fine from the Kremlin's point of view. So either he reasserts himself, and that's okay, or else if he looks like he's actually going to fall, that's when they're going to have to make kind of tougher decisions. But at the moment, in frankly classic Kremlin style, they're putting off a decision as long as they possibly can. I I don't want to leave Belarus without bringing up this 
it's a very strange story of the well, we call them all Wagner mercenaries <laughs> now. Uh, I'm not 100% sure if these were actually affiliated with Wagner, but that's what they're calling them. And at first, a very strange story that on the one hand is getting stranger and stranger, but on the other hand, maybe less and less interesting. At first, we thought, you know, the Russians had sent them, but we also thought maybe Lukashenko had organized, a, he had orchestrated himself as he has done before to kind of bolster his sovereignty defender credentials going into the election. And then more recently, we started getting these stories that, oh, no, 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 the whole thing was a Ukrainian covert action. What do you make of this story? Is it important? Is there any long-term insights or lessons that we gained from it? Or was it all a bunch of hot air, basically? Well, there's a huge amount of hot air, but even even hot air can, can, can be significant. No, I think it does does show some interesting things. I mean, first of all, this notion that, in fact, it was this phenomenally cunning Ukrainian spitzop to get Russian mercenaries who had fought into the Donbass, fought in the Donbass, into their hands so that they, they, they could try them, is, a, is an interesting one because it first was floated by a, it's fair to say, rather state-adjacent pundit in the Russian media, really, I think, is a way of trying to exonerate Lukashenko for actually having sort of detained them. And then it got picked up in Ukraine, where, to be honest, it's, it's been spun as an anti, anti-government angle, because the idea was there was this really clever operation, but then leaks from you know, the, the highest circles, no one's saying who, but leaks from the highest circles because they want to have a sort of a rapprochement with Russia, ruined it. The problem is this, the idea is that, that, that the Ukrainians organized it, look, the only reason why these mercenaries were transiting through Minsk rather than flying direct was because of COVID. And this is an operation that's meant to take place a year you know, starting a year ago, which would somehow imply that Ukrainian military intelligence knew about COVID before anyone else. That There are too many um, weaknesses and, 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 and loopholes in this. I think actually it says something about the way that leaks and allegations of conspiratorial uh, sort of politics have become part of, unfortunately, the sort of the whole nature of Ukrainian politics these days. And there is an attempt to try and undermine attempts at a rapprochement with Russia over the Donbass. But at the same time, I mean, why, why did Lukashenko do this? I mean, you, know, you, you had this bunch of, of, of Wagner mercenaries, again, we'll assume they're Wagner, who were just sort of transiting through Minsk clearly not making any attempt to disguise who they were. They were meant to be suspicious because they weren't all getting drunk. And then they were kind of claimed as, you know, they were arrested as the vanguard of Russian destabilization operations. And there were meant to be sort of two, 300 others around the country and such like. Clearly before the elections, Lukashenko in classic style was actually trying to play the anti-Russian card. Maybe because he knew that his elections were going to be thoroughly rigged and he wanted the, to remind the European Union, remember, you know, you, you want to woo me, you want to woo me away from Moscow, and I'm willing to be wooed, but that means you, you can't be too critical when I rig the election again. And because in a way, Russia is a safe bet, because I, I imagine, because the Russian, the Russian response was really quite muted which I imagine is through back channels or indeed through personal contact, since Lukashenko does talk to Putin. It might well be said, look, I'm going to have to do this just, 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 just as a bit of PR. Look, don't, don't read anything into it. So I think it's, it, what it really speaks to is, first of all, that you know, obviously there, there is this strain of conspiratorial politics in Ukraine. Secondly, the deep cynicism of Lukashenko, that he would play 
the same man who's currently saying NATO is massing troops on our borders and trying to infiltrate Belarus and the Belarusian <laughs> politics, only a few weeks ago was saying Russia is massing troops on our borders and trying to intervene in Belarusian yeah, politics. It just makes him look like such a clown that he's changing his story so many times. This is, this is something that happens to almost any authoritarian leader, even democratic ones, shall we say, is you know, they, over time, if they stay in office too long, they do begin to become caricatures of themselves. They surround themselves with, with, with yes men. They you know, exclude critical voices from their circle. We see this with Putin. You know, Putin today is not the same Putin as we saw in the year 2000, for example. And his circle is very, very different. And so I think this is probably the case. I mean, until recently, almost any profile of Lukashenko would somehow have the word wily in it. That, that, was, that seemed to be Lukashenko's kind of epithet. He was, I mean, as well as being, quote unquote, the last dictator of Europe, he was also always wily, precisely because of his ability to play off multiple forces. How many times can you do that? How many times can you do the same shtick? And how lazy do you get with it after a certain point? Again, I think one of the reasons why we have these protests in Belarus is precisely because Lukashenko today is not the Lukashenko of five, let alone 10 years ago. He's not only is he out of step with the, with the needs and aspirations of the country, but he's out of step with how he was. Well, I think that's a good place to put an end on it. Dr. Gallieri, this has been fantastic. I just have one last question. When should we expect the next blog post or maybe podcast from you? I really enjoyed uh, listening and reading in, in, in the lead up. So I'm just wondering what's kind of coming down the well, pipe. Well, there's always this, this tense uh, relationship between you know, life getting interesting with stuff happening and actually having the chance to write and, and, and talk about it. <laughs> yeah. My aim is for the next kind of full podcast to, to drop next weekend. So about the, at the end, end of the month, but we'll see. Life does have a tendency to get in the way. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you again uh, for coming on, and we'd would love to have you back sometime. Oh, my my pleasure. Come on, you know what academic does not is not delighted with the sound. You know, forty four minutes for the sound of his own voice. <laughs> Take care, guys. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of